American democratic capitalism, the force which put the U.S. at the center of success and once created a better life for most citizens, is in imminent danger. More than 40 years ago, a dangerous decline began that has created an unprecedented state of economic disparity. Our shared model of the economy, that of a machine, was supposed to produce a large and prosperous middle class. But something entirely different is happening instead. We'll be back in a moment to talk with Roger Martin about his new book, When More is Not Better, Overcoming America's Obsession with Economic Efficiency. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Are you trying to increase your treatment plan close rates while also increasing revenue? How can you do both for your dental practice without burning out an already burdened staff? The answer, remote dental monitoring. You need a trusted HIPAA-compliant app that helps you and your staff work smarter, not harder. This needs to be an easy-to-use, easy-onboard app that your patients will find fun to use and will increase their engagement and success with aligners. You need the InHand Dental app. The InHand Dental app allows you to engage with your patients in real time, send individual and batched messages, and solve problems to increase compliance without using up chair time. The result? Happy patients, happy staff, and happy practices. With more revenue and the ability to do more starts. With prices starting as low as $149 a month, it's perfect for a growing aligner business. Check us out and learn more at InHandDental.com. Plus, mention Burleson for a 20% off discount on your subscription when you contact us. That's InHandDental.com. Roger Martin is Professor Emeritus at the Rotman School of Management at University of Toronto, where he served as Dean from 1998 to 2013. He was named the world's number one management thinker and has published 11 books, including Creating Great Choices and Playing to Win. He's a frequent contributor to the Harvard Business Review. He's also a trusted strategy advisor to many CEOs and global companies, including Procter Gamble, Lego, and Ford. On today's episode, Roger and I discuss how our obsession with economic efficiency has forced too much pressure and a pursuit of perfectionism resulting in a dangerously unbalanced economy that lacks resilience. You'll discover what business executives, political leaders, educators, and citizens can do to achieve the overall balance between efficiency and resilience. I'm excited to dig into these and many more lessons on another episode of The Burleson Box. Today, I'm so honored to have Roger Martin on the program discussing his new book, When More Is Not Better, Overcoming America's Obsession with Economic Efficiency. Roger, thank you for being here. It is my pleasure, Dustin. Thank you for having me. So many books, you know, they present a problem and then they agitate the problem and they look at the problem through 20 different lenses. Your book, however, refreshingly presents a significant amount of solutions. In other words, here's what we can do about this problem. The book is brilliant. I'd love to know, why did you decide to write it? Well, um, I was just worried about uh, stuff I'd seen in the economy. I, I guess I'm a uh, person who loves both democracy and capitalism. And I saw it not providing the kind of promise 
results that it had long done and said, wow, if somebody doesn't take a look at why that's the case and help create some solutions for that, we may lose something that I think is uh, terribly precious. Um, and I guess I also saw the challenge of, of, a, of a model, which is, which is sort of totalitarian capitalism, right? Which China has now pursued rather than, rather than uh, a communist socialist kind of economic system. It's an increasingly capitalist system, but done in a totalitarian way. And believe me, Dustin, I would like democratic capitalism to win over totalitarian capitalism. I'm in the same boat as you. We can talk later about, I love your opinion on whether you think and when the renminbi will become the, the world uh, reserve currency. We can save that for later in the discussion. <laughs> but, um, you know, talk about, and I a hundred percent agree. So if you're listening to this podcast and you're a member, you've received a copy of the book and our study guide. I hope you're getting through it and enjoying this as much as I did. And, you know, you say in the book, this, this, version of capitalism that we've set up as this hyper-efficient machine. It was supposed to produce like an even distribution, like a bell-shaped curve, right? The, oh. the middle class prospering, and then small groups of either extremely rich or extremely poor on either side. But that's not happening. Can you talk about that? Yes. I mean, that, that that's right. I think that was probably an implicit assumption behind behind this economy. And that's why, why we care so much about the middle class, much about political dialogue is about, well, is the middle class doing well? Is the middle class doing well? And it's because we believe that that would be the case. And, and not only did we believe that that curve would be bill-shaped largely, uh, it would also, if you will, move to the right smartly every year, i.e. the median family would in, uh, have an improved economic condition in most years. And, you know, from 1776 to, to 1976, that happened to the best of our, our you know, kind of ability and, and, and uh, statistics that that happened in over 90% of the years, right? So it marched to the right, marched up uh, so that the poor, poorest people uh, in the economy got less poor, the median family uh, uh, moved, uh, moved ahead, in fact, at a rate that caused it to double every about 30 years. So kind of every generation. So you could look at the, across the kitchen table to your kids uh, and say, you know, they'll have twice the real income that I have when they're my age. Not bad. Um, but what's happened uh, since is the stagnation of those middle incomes and the extension of the high incomes uh, so that that, that the tail of the distribution on the high side has gone out you know, nearly to infinity, uh, stretched out. And the cost of that has been to take too much of the increased economic activity. So if the GDP of the economy goes up uh, a dollar, too much of that dollar is going to people who who don't really need it, right? Who are who are exceedingly rich, and the consequence of that, I'm not so worried about the fact that they're getting rich. If if that's you know kind of that that in and of itself doesn't bug me. What bugs me is now the equation is that the median income since 1976 
has been on a pace to double every century, literally, Dustin, rather than every generation, 30 years, every century. And it's actually a little more than a century if you want to be, if you want to be uh, uh, precise. So now looking across the table, uh, the kitchen table to your, your kids, you can, you, you can now say, oh, my kids, kids, kids will be almost twice as, uh, as prosperous as we are. That's hardly something to write home about, right? Something to feel a sense of, 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 of pride about, a sense of optimism uh, about. And that's fundamentally what's changed between the period, you know, 1776 to 1976 and 1976 uh, to the, the, the present and, the, you know, at least the, the foreseeable future until we change things. And you argue in the book, and I agree that that's really put us in an economy that lacks resilience, right? That's right. That's right. We, this this sort of push for the extremes of economic efficiency uh, have have put kind of resilience in the in the back seat. We've we've gotten more monocultures. I mean, I talk about ones that I don't matter as much much to the world, like. 80% of our almonds are grown in one valley in the world, the Central Valley in, in California. Uh, and we just sort of do that because it's the most efficient way to grow almonds, uh, even if it means, even if it means uh, shipping bees in from all over America for the week that they need to pollinate the, the blossoms on the, on the trees. It's sort of like, oh, no big deal. And we wonder why bees are dying. Well, they're, they're, they're dying of the one theory, at least, is they're dying of the stress of being shipped around the, the country for this sort of thing. But that's, that's happening kind of throughout the economy where we are seeing, you know, kind of, I don't think we have as resilient news anymore, right? It's yeah. because, because we have fewer and fewer providers of, uh, of news uh, and it's been consolidated. Is it more efficient? Yeah, probably. Uh, but is it resilient to the notion of having multiple views uh, and, a, and a variety of, 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 the, of those views? That's just sort of gone by the wayside, as, we have, as we've said, anything that creates greater efficiency is an inherent good. And in the book, you you present some prescriptions because it's easy to say, oh, this is just business executives getting richer at the expense of the poor. But you, you go through five different categories from business executives. That clearly is one of your many areas of expertise as the dean of the Rotman School in Toronto for 15 years or more. That it also includes political leaders, educators, and us as citizens, so I, I kind of want to dig into that a little bit because, particularly at the time of this recording, is really easy for political leaders to say we have the solution. Can you kind of speak to that a little bit and why it really is going to take all of us? Yes, yes. I mean that. that to be honest, I, I'm, that's got me a little bit worried. The degree to which which uh, we kind of one party says, "Oh, thank goodness, we're in charge now and we've got the solutions." Um, the period that I'm talking about. 1970s to 2000 has been uh, almost equally Republican and Democrat, right? So there have been 30 years of Republican presidents and 20 years of Democratic presidents since 1970 and 30 years of Democrats in charge of the Congress and 20 years of, of Republicans. So this problem has been created equally by Democratic uh, leadership and Republican leadership. 
full stop. Any any argument, any to me, there I cannot. I mean, I can't even even begin to begin to uh, take seriously any argument that says it's one versus the other. So, like, hopefully, everybody in the country is 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 hopeful about this administration. I am, but I'm less hopeful when when they act like now that we're in charge, we'll solve this. Uh, we got into this uh, 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 in a systemic way, and we got to get out of it a systemic way. Executives have to do things about it. Uh, political leaders have to. Educators have to, and and uh, citizens uh, have to. One of the solutions for, particularly in politics, is to extend time horizons. And I picked up a book. I think it was. I think it was before the pandemic. It's by an American economist, Garrett Jones. He's at George Mason University, mm-hmm. yep. and the the title was 10 percent less democracy." And I thought, "Oh, this is this is interesting, right?" And, and I read the book, and I thought, "Oh, wow, this is actually this is some really good points." And that's one of the solutions I think that Garrett argues is that you know we're so short sighted in politics that you know in the House in the United States they're they're really campaigning constantly and and yeah. senators vote differently as their reelection year comes closer. So can you talk about time horizons and both maybe in business as well? Cause that's, sure. that's an issue yeah. as well. Yeah, no, no, ab- ab- absolutely. Uh, uh, and, and, and maybe I guess I have a, a, maybe a slightly different spin on, on time horizons too, than other people have, which is, which is in, in politics um, there's a, a belief in in permanence being good, so you fight a huge fight in in Congress between the executive branch to get to write the perfect let, legislation to solve whatever you think the the problem de jour is, um, and and you write it as if it's going to be there forever, um, and then all that happens. Uh, and so in some sense, that's a funny, funny way that it's a, it's, it's a long time horizon, right? This is going to be around for, uh, uh, forever. Um, but all that happens is that people immediately game that, right? Yep. They, they game whatever system is, is put in place. Uh, and, uh, I mean, this happens on, on kind of on, on wall street, uh, kind of all the time you, 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 ch- you change the rules and, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, the, the, uh, Clinton administration thought, oh, the way we will solve, uh, executive, uh, CEO compensation getting out of control is we will, we will say, and this is when it was on average less than a million dollars a year for big company CEOs, we will say, that only the first a million dollars uh, of CEO compensation is deductible for tax purposes, you know, and, and that'll really discourage them from paying more than a more than a million dollars, right? So what happened? Did did people did all the boards of directors say, "Oh dear, the President uh, Clinton uh, has has said uh, we must we must keep uh, compensation uh, down and below a million dollars"? No. I said, all right, we'll, 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 we'll pay him a million bucks, but we'll give him all sorts of this new kind of thing called stock options. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and within within 10 years of the passage of the bill, uh, CEO compensation had gone up 10x, right? I mean, <laughs> exactly. And why? It's because they gamed the game. They And this is, this is why I, I, I say the economy is a complex adaptive system. 
the players in it adapt constantly. So no matter how clever you think your legislation is, they will game it. And so that's that's why I, I, I say write revisions into every law you make. Uh, say this has to be reviewed and revised uh, and admit, I wish politicians would just admit, you know, we often get it wrong. Uh, and what we hope to accomplish, we, we, uh, we don't, we accomplish the, uh, uh, the opposite and we can, uh, you know, we don't assume that we'll get everything right. Don't judge us by not getting everything right. Judge us on the basis of when we saw it wasn't working well, did we tweak it quickly to, uh, uh to fix it? Um, and that, that would make for much better uh, uh, laws, much better advance of of legislation than than what we have what we have now. So it's a little different take on on the on the short termism. While they're being short term, they're acting as if they can be longer term than uh, than anybody can possibly be. Nobody is nobody is that uh, that smart. I love that assessment, and the, it reminds me of the, always the power of unintended consequences. Yes, right? yes, and and there are models of, of this, right? Yeah. So in, in Canada, the the most important uh, financial services regulation is a is a really big one that would be bigger than any U.S. regulation all in one. It's called the Bank Act, and and it and it it organizes and legislates essentially all of banking. Uh, when it was put in place. Uh, literally in, in, in 1871, uh, four years after the birth of Canada as an independent uh, company, some wise group of group of legislators uh, legislators said, uh, put in a clause that says it it must be by law revised, or, sorry, reviewed and revised every ten years, uh, and and in fact. That worked out so well, so it's nonpartisan, right? It, it's not. Oh, it's because conservatives are, uh, are are the governing party, and they don't like what the banks are doing, and so they're going to make it political. Or the liberals are, or the or the you know the new Democrats, the socialists. No, um, it's because ten years is up, right? So it's not political, and it's required. You can't just as a government say, ah, nah, it's looking pretty good. No, it's re- required. And it's worked so well that in 1992, they shortened it to five years, right? And I'm sure, and there are many reasons for this, but in the global financial crisis, 2008, 2009, no Canadian bank got into financial distress. There were no bailouts uh, of, of uh, banks. They sailed through it uh, wonderfully. Why? Well, they had less than five-year-old regulation at the time that was suited for the current environment, whereas the U.S. banks had lots of ancient uh, regulation that weren't uh, weren't suited for uh, for the environment. So it's it's utterly doable. It's just not done very very often. I'm glad you pointed that out. I wanted to say, and I wasn't sure because I'm not an economist, but I wanted to chime in on that. And I think the Canadian banks did really, really well when we imploded here in the United States. They they did. They did. And you can even use a sports analogy. <laughs> Dustin, I don't know if you, if you like that, but the NFL does this. You know, the, uh, America's most successful uh, uh, sport commercially has a competition committee that at the end of every season it meets and it tweaks the rules 
to make sure that offense and defense are in balance, right? So it's done all of these, all of these things like, you know, for football aficionados, when the West coast offense, Bill Walsh and the West coast offense made offense start to dominate defense, they went in and just tweaked the rules. They didn't say you're a bad man, uh, Bill. They said, you're a great coach and you've won a couple of Super Bowls quickly, uh, but your offense of system it could destroy the game. So we're going to tweak the system to allow cornerbacks to chuck the wide receiver once within five yards of the line of scrimmage. I mean, think about how arcane a rule that is. But it was put in place to tweak the competitive dynamics to put, the, put them back in in uh, in a in a way that would make for the most exciting game why can't we have laws work that way where we just say we thought these the these these were going to work well but we have to tweak them in this way and have and have somebody saying you know we have to do this on a regular basis that is our job the competition committee does meet at the end of every year and it does make uh, tweaks to the game Now, a quick word from our sponsor. When's the last time you evaluated your credit card processing statement? Our partners at Stacks are offering a free savings analysis for our listeners, where they will actually take your merchant statement with your current processor and show you where you're overpaying. Stacks has saved orthodontics practices over 40% per month on payment processing costs. So don't wait. Get your free savings analysis today and see how much you're overpaying for your credit card processing. Go to StaxPayments.com forward slash Burleson dash seminars to schedule your savings analysis today. Plus, as a special offer for our podcast listeners, if you sign up today, you can get your first two months of payments processing costs waived from Stax. Once again, that's StaxPayments.com forward slash Burleson dash seminars. Stop overpaying. Start saving. And now, back to the program. We've had on this program Paul Carroll, who was a journalist at the Wall Street Journal, and, and his book, Billion Dollar Lessons, really explores that where in business. So if we translate the, and I, I love that example of the NFL, that's that's great. And I will mm-hmm. encourage our listeners to, and people who maybe aren't listening to this to come check out that section because it's, it's brilliant. The The business analogy is that you know, we just kind of stay the misguided course. You know, we think of like GE and IBM and a lot of these firms that, you know, like at a certain point, General Electric, you know, had so many subsidiaries, you didn't really know what the core of the business was. That, you know, inability to revisit and say, oh, well, you know, where are we headed, right? And, and is it sustainable? I'm going to talk a little bit about sustainable goals, particularly at the time of this recording. I'm thinking of companies like General Motors and Ford. I know you sit on the advisory for you know, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger and these, you know, billionaire investors for a long time had been calling on Wall Street and regulators to say, listen, let's let's stop putting so much pressure on these CEOs to perform quarterly because it's it's causing them to set goals that are not sustainable. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, no, ab- absolutely. Um, uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's one of these systems that's in some sense. It's been so sort of efficiency driven, and and you know what I what I say in the the book is it's efficiency itself is not the problem. It's the proxies we use for efficiency. So so 
we use a proxy for efficiency, uh, which is that did your earnings go up this quarter or did your costs go down this, this, this quarter? Uh, we use those as proxies, but that's, that's, not, that's not effectiveness, right? Peter Drucker talked about effectiveness as opposed to, uh, opposed to uh, efficiency. Uh, and, and yes, so we, 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 we set these, these, things, these things up as proxies. Uh, I will call you more efficient if our labor costs are down by a percent this uh, this quarter, well, I mean, what if by driving down our labor costs, uh, we've driven down the customer experience to a greater extent? Right, and I give uh, I, I give the example of three G and, and Kraft Heinz. Right, they came in and said, "Oh, we can make this more efficient," and they cut they they uh, uh, cut uh, two and a half. Uh, points out of their cost structure and then their margins went down by 3.8 points and and so it's sort of like that's so that's more efficient huh uh you know (laughs) well yes yes in some narrow narrow sense uh but in a broader sense it resulted in one of the biggest write downs in the in the history of u.s business a 15 billion dollar write down because their brands were worth that much less because they had become quote more efficient and 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 you know buffett and all those folks are right it's because they're saying we're going to measure ourselves in these short intervals when that that you know a, it doesn't matter in the cosmic scheme of things what your earnings were this this quarter, but if you focus on them, you will do things that damage the long run, um, and and uh, and that's why that's one of the reasons why I say one of my one of my uh, recommendations for executives is is make sure you have more than one measurement that you're going to judge yourself uh, by, because what happens when you have when you have one measurement it uh you get this this phenomenon that, that people call surrogation right which it which in which the measurement becomes in your mind the thing right so for wells fargo they wanted deeper customer relationships a good thing but their measurement was accounts per customer on average how many of the customers in your branch how many accounts did the average customer in your branch have uh, and then they said, well, you know, the way to get that number up is to give people incentives for, for uh, getting customers to have more accounts with, uh, with Wells Fargo. And if they don't, there'll be punishments for them not doing that. And so, so what started out as a good idea, deep customer relationships became a measure, how many accounts and a tool paying uh, branch members an incentive to, to get them to open accounts, which resulted in people in branches feeling that pressure, opening accounts that people didn't ask for. They get a credit card statement, then they said, I never signed up for one or an, another you know, a bank statement that they never signed up for, which caused billions of dollars of fine, the destruction of a long and, and auspicious reputation. Um, but that's what happens when you have one thing, right? And, and it's better to be like Southwest Airlines and say, you know what? We want to be the lowest cost, highest customer satisfaction, highest employee satisfaction, most profitable airline in America. And, 
your first reaction might be, whoa, no, <laughs> fit together. How can you be lowest cost and highest employee satisfaction? Well, the answer is it's hard, right? You actually have to think cleverly and make and make intelligent trade-offs. And one thing that you're never going to have happen when you have a situation that's like that is for people to think that what we're trying to accomplish is this one measure because they'll be reminded, oh, but there's a measure that feels like it's almost polar opposite to it. So we aren't the measure. What we do is not the measure. What we do is make clever trade-offs to figure out uh, uh, how to do this. And in the case of Southwest, it's we'll figure out a system uh, that takes fewer employees per passenger seat mile to run the system so we can pay all of our employees more than they'd get paid at any other airline. So they're happy as a clam working for, for, for Southwest, but we still have a lower uh, uh, cost structure, right? That's what, that's what brings greatness is when, you, is when you do that rather than having the one measure. And this is where, you know, when your one measure is shareholder value maximization, you know, you, you, start, to, you start to do all sorts of things, commit all sorts of sins to get that one thing because that's what you're, that's what you're about. You don't do the clever thing, which is what uh, Southwest does. And we get blinded by it. You write about in the book, sometimes we double down on that thing. Absolutely. And and we think, like one of the great ironies of the modern capital markets and, and business world is people think that the pursuit of shareholder value results in more shareholder value. A wise, wise, wise man, way back when Aristotle, one of my favorite thinkers of all time, the Greek philosopher, pointed out that if a person sets out in life to be happy, they're unlikely to end up happy. Uh, if instead they set out to live a good life, by which he meant a life of servitude to your 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 fellow man, to, so to society, you'll probably end up happy. And so, and so saying you want something is does not necessarily uh, mean you're more likely to get that that thing. It may make it less likely. And I think when you say I want to maximize shareholder value and and shout it from the treetops as CEOs will do, what do what on earth do do their customers think? Oh, say oh, so do I've got a large target painted on my back. Uh, you're trying to extract as much from me as possible. Oh, that's that sounds great. I'm glad I buy from you. And, em <laughs> and employees, right? They come to, they leap out of bed in the morning, leap to their feet, and say, "Hooray! I'm going to work today to increase shareholder value." Boy, <laughs> I'm motivated. Like, who's motivated by that? The answer is nobody. Uh, but if instead, instead, the company stands for, you know. P&G is one of my favorite companies, making the lives of the world's consumers a little bit better every day. I think I could hop out of bed and say, that's worth uh, going to work for. And guess what? You're going to increase shareholder value a lot. Or J&J, &J, you know, their credo, carved in granite in, uh, in 1948 uh, at, the, at the insistence of the founder, Robert Wood Johnson, our our customers, he called them patients because it was mainly healthcare. Our patients come first. Our employees come second. The, the communities in which we uh, work come third. And last come the shareholders. And As notice, it should be. Notice he didn't say <laughs> next. He said last. 
But then he said, but if we do the first three well, uh, shareholders will earn a fair return. And the market capitalization of Johnson & Johnson is something north of 300, I haven't checked lately, $300 billion. It was, and I don't know, in 1948, it was probably, you know, $50 million. So he's right. He's right. Uh, and that's, that's another example of it's a complex system, right? The economy and business is a complex system. It's not like there's a straight line that goes from X to Y. What Robert Wood Johnson says is you may want Y, but here are all the other things you do and out pops the, the, the thing that, uh, that you want. And that's how the economy works. It's complex. It's, as we said before, adaptive. It's a big system. And we've got to think about it that way and think of managing it that way. And that's why revising laws and having this sense of tweaking is the case, having multiple uh, measures, educators, right? Stop teaching, you know, kind of certainty. Stop teaching that we know this will cause that because we don't. For most of the things, we simply don't. And even the things we're sure we do, we end up not being uh, uh, right about. Right? We taught Newtonian physics as the truth uh, for close to two centuries until a patent clerk who didn't wear socks uh, came along, <laughs> Albert Einstein, and said, it's mainly right. It's, it's like he's got it mainly right, but here's the ways in which it's not quite the way he he said it but we taught it as the certain truth for over a century let's 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 stop that right are we giving people are we giving students an advantage in life by telling them more things are certain uh and so you can just sort of fire and forget on more things than not i i, I would i would say a big a big no siree no siree we're 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 making them more vulnerable, I think, uh, by uh, by doing that. I agree. It's a, it's a challenge for our listeners who come from professional schools, medicine, dentistry, law, where they're taught rote memorization. They are taught to be professional students. They take tests for four, six, eight, 10, 11 years, and they come out and then decide they're going to enter the business world and run a private practice, and that doesn't bode very well for making these things uh, coalesce. Oh, I, I'm curious your advice for the listener, the small business owner who says, okay, may, maybe we've been focused on the wrong measurement. Maybe not, I hope, to the extent that Wells Fargo and the example we shared, but maybe they realize the current model they're in isn't going to achieve the results they want. And I want to point to something amazing you achieved at the Rotman School. Uh, I read either in the book or maybe in a previous interview that I think when you showed up at Rotman, the budget was, you know, 13 million or somewhere in that ballpark. And you, you were able to 10 X the budget and, and understand the model you were in wasn't going to achieve the world-class school that you built. Can you kind of walk the listeners through that? Sure. Yeah, no, no, I, I had it. Your, your numbers are exactly right. The, the, the budget I inherited was 13 million. Uh, although we were running a $1 billion, $1 billion, $1 million, uh, uh, deficit. Um, and, uh, and when I left, we were 
you know, we were running a surplus and, and had $130 million of revenue. And so lots of wow. people say, wow, wow, you really did a lot of good things at, Rot- uh, at Rotman. Well, yeah, you can do a lot of good things with $130 million versus versus uh, $13 <laughs> million. It, it doesn't, doesn't take actually a rocket scientist to, to, to do that. But, but I mean, I, I, I mean, I think, I think what we, what we, what I tried to focus on are the things that I would tell your your uh, uh, business uh, listeners, which is which is, you know, be really careful of the modern tendency towards reductionism, right? This is finance, as distinct from marketing, as distinct from operations, as distinct from HR, and you go to each of those silos and give them instructions to optimize their silo. That's that's. <laughs> That's where little companies should have a big advantage over big companies. Big companies almost do that by necessity because they are, these functions are so big and a little company don't, right? You know, have those people work together. Don't, don't reduce things to the, these, these narrow classifications. Think across the business. Think about think about how your marketing decisions influence your finance decisions and influence your your uh, operations decisions. So it's a modern phenomena that these things get more have uh, been narrowed and siloized. You kind of re- reject reject that. Also, you know, kind of recognize that Slack is not an enemy, right? So everything that doesn't appear that it's you know being utilized fully today is not necessarily waste it might be really important slack uh, and we certainly have learned in covid you know all these hospitals that didn't want to have any extra ventilators uh didn't uh have have you know anything but a you know a couple of days supply of ppe uh that they would replenish you know kind of kind of uh quickly to keep their inventory and uh carrying costs down they learned a big lesson that that slack is not is not equal to waste in fact the great w edwards deming one of the greatest you know kind of management thinkers of the 20th uh, century pointed out uh, that he was against waste uh and getting waste out of systems but he said slack uh there's always an optimal amount of slack in a, in, a, in an operation or a system and it's never zero uh, um and so i would that that's the that's uh Kind of the the advice I'd I'd give, and 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 I guess you know the other thing I would just say on wages. There's so much <clears throat> focus on on getting wages down so that you know to make you productive, and uh, <clears throat> I, I just I just think that that uh, it's so simple to do that, and it's hard to have awesome customer service. Um. And every time you say, can we get a cheaper person to do this? I think you have to ask the question, what is this going to do to customer service? I mean, really, let's think carefully before we do this, this thing. Um, and, you know, I don't know if, <coughs> excuse me, I don't know if your listeners, you know, love shopping at Costco, but, but I do and lots of people do and it's arguably the you know the most successful retailing model uh in in the country not at this point and nobody in a costco makes less than 20 bucks an hour 
and it's retailing, right? The home of low wages. And you could say, how can they compete in the club store segment, this very, very price-sensitive club store uh, uh, segment with those super high wages, not just high wages, like almost ridiculously high wages. Well, it's because the co-founder, Jim Senegal, and still kind of CEO and chairman of it, just says, you know, you ain't going to get a great customer experience paying $12 an hour. Uh, You're going to have people worrying about you know, feeding their kids, putting a roof over their their uh, their heads, and you ain't going to get them coming to work excited if if you only give them their hours, their schedule a couple of days in 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 advance, and don't think about uh, their their lives. If you pay them a lot, you train them a lot, you cross train them, you give them a, a variety of opportunity opportunities, and you promote almost entirely from within. You know, if you want to be CEO, a future CEO of Costco, the best way to start out in it is getting a job on the sales uh, uh, floor uh, or as a cashier. Um, if you do all of that, you'll have employees who will serve the customer in such a delightful, delighted way that they'll come more often, buy more stuff, and, and, and you, will, you will prosper. And that's exactly true. But it takes that that kind of more systemic approach that says what we pay people relates to customer service. Whether we cross train them or not relates to their happiness, relates to customer service, whether we promote from within or not uh, uh, relates to how much they try to advance themselves uh, within this with the company rather than going elsewhere to, to advance, which will have more long service employees who will know how to solve customer problems and internal problems and make us uh, more effective. That's what I'd say to, to, to everybody is, is think about the complex dynamics of your, of your business. Don't simplify, uh, you know, I, I don't say complicate things, but just recognize the, the complexity and don't shy away from it. Absolutely. And I want to say Costco has one of the lowest employee turnovers in, in that category, correct? Absolutely. I think the I think the lowest. Now, Trader Joe's also has a similar philosophy and so I, I uh, Trader Joe's may be as slow as 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 Costco uh, uh too, but yeah, you know, stunningly uh stunningly low. Uh it's like Four Seasons uh hotel chain, right? Hotel uh, turnover in the in the global hotel industry is about 70% a year. And just think about what that means. That means the average person in the average hotel across the world is on their way to a 16-month career in that hotel. Wow. Uh, four seasons is five. So the average person you meet in a four seasons is on their way to a 20-year career. <laughs> Just think about that. Think about the difference. You think they're going to know how to treat you, you, know how to get stuff done? You know, on the way to a 20-year career, do you think they're going to be invested in the company and invested in giving you service? You know, heck yeah. Um, and and uh, but, but none of those things would happen if you have this sort of narrow-minded focus on proxies for efficiency that you say, if I could just get my labor costs down, you know, and one way to get your labor costs down is to fire all your long service employees and empl- and replace them with with new employees at the bottom of the wage wage scale, right? No much exactly. easy, but then your service goes absolutely to uh, to hell in a handbasket, uh, and and you're like 
3G and having to suck up a $15 billion write down because, because you were indiscriminate and getting two and a half points out of your, uh, out of your cost structure. And, and long-term consequences. You share that example in the, in the book um, for listeners going through the study guide. It's on page 120 through 123, pointing back earlier to your conversation on reductionism. Talk about that. I mean, here's the, here's the world's premier luxury resort, the Four Seasons, yeah. with exceptional service. And in the book, you highlight that they don't have, uh, you know, a head of guest experience. They don't have a department for guest services, that's, which most hotels do. That's phenomenal. Yeah. yeah. No, no. It's, and, and, and that's, that's because, uh, as he said, Izzy Sharp, the the legendary founder of, of of the chain, said, "We want everybody to think their job is is customer service." Uh, and he also and he also right said, "Hmm, the only way that we're going to get our employees to treat our guests the way we want them to treat them is to treat our employees the way we want them to treat their guests." Right? Yeah. So cool. Like just so cool. It's like, and it's like, and and he, and, he's, and, and then he he jokes. About, I, I've I've seen him giving giving this talk, talk about this, and he's a very self deprecating guy. And he, and he says, "Oh, that's really original, huh?" Uh, <laughs> I think somebody called that the golden rule. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 you're right. Kind of, it is. It is in some sense incredibly simple. Um, and you know. Sometimes those simple things are are what really makes uh, uh, makes things uh, uh, work. Uh, I mean, I've been I've been I've been thinking about it. I've, I've been actually I'm actually going to you know uh, uh, well, preview something. I'm going to write an article on on business models and how you can tell they're going to get you in trouble versus not. And I I think uh, the the rule you should follow is is if that business model is not something that that you you would think that a human being would follow then it's a bad model right exactly you know it, it, just just ask if you've ask if you've if you've kind of taken taken the 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 humanity out of out of a a, a model right and and I and I would say shareholder value, right, takes the humanity uh, out of uh, out of a model. That's not how h- human beings work. I think I literally think that at at will employment isn't how human beings uh, uh, work. You know, oh, if we, you know, you may have served me, uh, you may have been my friend for twenty years, but suddenly I decide I don't need you and I dismiss you as a friend with no reason, having having to be given no discussion. Right? Those that kind of a model doesn't have humanity in it, uh, and is going to get you in trouble. Is is my view? The assembly line was that, right? Henry Ford, bless him, you know, said. How come every time I, I uh, uh, hire a pair of hands, it comes with a brain attached? <laughs> right? That that's sort of saying I don't really want to hire a human. Uh, I want to hire hands. Uh, and what happened over time? Right? You know, terrible worker strife, terrible quality problems of workers on the line not being attentive to quality. Well, it's partially because because you took the humanity out of it. It wasn't obeying a human rule. 
And so that that's just one of the things I've been thinking about since the since the the book is giving people a way of testing whether the models they're using to operate their business are ones that are full of humanity or have the humanity kind of stripped out of them. That's brilliant. And it's everywhere. I mean, there's decisions that are being made that aren't only bad for companies, but bad for the employees. And you argue in the book for the country overall. Yes. Yes. They, they add up in little ways to a kind of a, you know, a, a big thing. And I, and, and, uh, um, I, you know, I think it's, I think it's a real challenge, you know, right now people, are you know people are questioning capitalism if you ask young people they're saying socialism let's give that a try uh and you know i i don't want to make socialism into some bet noir but uh but i mean i'm not very enthused about that, <laughs> that prospect i can tell you that but but it it, it speaks to the discouragement over uh, over how capitalism is functioning and it is all of our responsibility. If we want that wonderful combination of democracy and capitalism, we have got to make capitalism work for humanity. And that means making it more human rather than less. And particularly for our younger workers who graduated, most of them were coming out of college in the financial collapse of 2008, 2009, and now getting their feet under them in their first kind of career uh, with the COVID pandemic is a huge issue. And in one of our key niches in, in dentistry, I think a half a half a million dental healthcare workers were laid off overnight. That, I mean, that's not, wow. There's no slack in that system. Yeah. Wow. That's a big number. That's bigger. I think most people not intimately involved in the world of dentistry would have never guessed it's that many. That's a very, very big number. And, you know, we were consulting and coaching clients, don't do not do this, right? Yeah. Because it's going to be very hard to maintain their trust. You've had a dental hygienist, you've had an associate doctor, you've had dental healthcare workers, assistants, and phones administrators working in your practice for 20 years, and suddenly times get hard and, and you let them all go apply for, and that was the excuse was, well, they can apply for unemployment. And I said, well, you know, how does that build trust? How does, when you finally want to bring them back, guess what? A lot of them didn't come back. Yes, I can believe that. No, I think there, uh, yeah, I think there are, there are always better solutions, right? Uh, I mean, it's, it's easy. The easiest thing in the world to do is to declare force majeure, right? Yeah. There was nothing I could do. Yep. No, there was, there were 20 different things you could have done. Some of them, you know, maybe upon further reflection, a horrible idea, but some of those 20 would be a, a much better idea than declaring force majeure uh, as if that person's life uh, doesn't matter. Um, it's interesting you say that because, you know, we have we have a dentist that we really like and uh, I, I was in getting my teeth cleaned and, and I, I was asking, uh, you know, in I think... November, yeah, and I was asking Kathy, the the dental hygienist, well, what did what did Doctor uh, Newell do during it? And and uh, she kept them, she kept them all on, uh, and okay. um, and and I think it was for the reasons you cite. She wasn't going to get them back, uh, and and they figured out accommodations, and you know, and there there was there was pain felt by everyone, but 
but uh, um, but it wasn't wasn't uh, Dr. Newell doing just fine uh, uh, by you know sacking Kathy and 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 all, and all of the people in the in the office. It was far far from that, and I I'm sure that she built loyalty and and uh, you know and. Kathy was was her normal cheery self with this particular uh, consumer, uh, and and so I, yeah, there's a way. There's always a way. Yeah, when you think about that. You know, you tie that back in back into the to the Ritz Carlton or just the, the principle of resilience. That's your your dentist has built a practice that is resilient. They yeah, likely right. had ways to navigate that challenge and and didn't just say you know the person at the top is going to be fine and everyone else is going to have pain. We're all going to feel pain yep. in a pandemic uh, in that example. So but if, you know, an efficiency oriented person would have looked at, uh, at her practice in June and said, you're being grotesquely inefficient. Right. Yep. Yep. And, and I think Dr. Newells would have probably, re- re- she would have responded, uh, well, maybe, but I am being resilient. Um, and I, you know, I think she's just plain right. Um, now I understand. I mean, maybe if she was, you know, had a gigantic financial problem going into it, she, she would just to survive. She might have to have done something, but but that's just that's just again not paying attention to resilience, financial resilience, so that when you have a downturn, you have no no uh, uh, transom. The the waves come come flying flying over. But I think I uh, you know I'm I'm sorry to hear that so many. Uh, people in, in in your profession were were let go that, that way. That does feel callous, and I think there's the, there's a long, long, long uh, tail uh, to that, much longer than than those employers uh, think. Absolutely, and if you go back and either just take snippets from this interview or, or dig into the book, you, you'll kind of see a master class on on how to prevent that. Hopefully, with many people taking action in the profession, but at least in your own practice, going back through these recommendations from Roger and, and, and thinking about, you know, where were we over-focused, for example, on, on one metric most healthcare practices measure and focus on relentlessly is new patients, new patients, new patients, and then return on invested capital uh, with human capital. And, you know, and, and if you're not looking at net promoter score, you're not looking at referrals, you're not looking at how you're supporting that community, employee satisfaction, uh, you know, we're really missing a, a huge opportunity to survive the next downturn because there will be another one. Yes. No, I, I, I couldn't agree more. You sound like a strategist to me, my friend. <laughs> I, I don't know if I've learned from uh, great people like you read, reading uh, reading good books and, and learning what I can. Um, I want to I could kind of highlight, by the way, for those of you listening, if this is your first um, exposure to Roger Martin, he has, I think, 10 or 11 other books and writes frequently for the Harvard Business Review. And I'd like to give him a chance to maybe share. You shared one article where you're where you're going next, but maybe where people can find more about you as we as we pull to a close here. Well, I got some uh, advice from a a friend uh, 10 years ago or so to put uh, I I said, Roger, you write so much. It's hard for people to 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 find it. organize it on a website. And so I have. So if you like what you've heard, uh, I, I have a website and it's just www. And then my my name with a middle initial, rogerlmartin.com. 
Uh, and if you do rogermartin.com and forget the, the L, my uh, L for Lloyd, uh, if you forget the L, you'll get a Houston car dealer who's very nice <laughs> and sends me, sends me stuff that comes comes to him. But so www.rogerlmartin.com uh, and, and all my writing is is uh, organized and you have links to be able to buy the books if the, if, if you so desire. Uh, and, uh, and I, as I, as, uh, Dustin said, I write for HBR regularly, but I started last summer writing for medium. So every Monday I have a column on medium. If, if you like that, uh, uh, that platform, so you can, you can look for, I do. Yeah, that's fantastic. We'll include those links in the show notes. And I just want to thank you for writing the book, not, not only for business leaders, but really for our politicians, those of us who teach and for the country at large, it's a, it's a great contribution to society. So thank you. It's my pleasure. And thank you for taking the time uh, to spend with me and, and for reading the book and asking such great questions. I, uh, that, that always, that always makes me joyful coming off one of these uh, interviews. So thank you very much, Dustin. Thank you. It's been an honor. Take care. You've been listening to another episode of The Burleson Box, where we bring you and your team leaders into the conversation with today's best authors and business leaders. If you enjoyed today's program, please share us with a friend or colleague. Visit theburlesonbox.com, where you can sign up to receive my monthly reading list and study guides for each of the books and authors we interview. Call us at 800-891-7520 to discuss how a Burleson Box membership, monthly coaching, and our annual leadership conference can work for you and your team leaders. Be sure to listen each month for new resources to help you and your employees serve your patients with excellence. Until next time, remember the words of Dr. Seuss, who said, The more that you read, the more things you will know. The more that you learn, the more places you'll go. Go, make it a great month, and I'll see you right here next time on The Burleson Box. Dr. Burleson here. You've heard that real estate should be a part of every investor's portfolio, but maybe you're unsure where to start. My good friend and colleague, Dr. David Phelps, leads an investor community that has ditched the traditional Wall Street model for the stability of real estate assets. They are called Freedom Founders, and they do real estate really, really well. David's Freedom Blueprint reveals exactly how much you need to retire. Some of my top clients have done the program. They speak highly of David and his Freedom Blueprint. With the certainty of their passive real estate investments, Freedom Founders members are free to spend more time with family or even leave the practice altogether. David has put together some special resources for my listeners. To access, just text Dustin to 972-203-6960 or go to freedomfounders.com forward slash Burleson.